It is not a wish or positive thinking, but it is a solid hope in what you have already accomplished for us. We thank you that our faith can be grounded in solid truth of what you, Jesus, have done for your people. God, I pray that we would live in response to your goodness to us. And that in every area where we are struggling to live in this way, that we would not rest in our own ability, but that we would look to you to realize what it is we are failing to trust you for. And so that we would be transformed, God, by the renewing of our minds. And for this, we come to your word this morning. We ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us in our study of Scripture. For you have revealed yourself to us in your word and by your spirit. And so we invite you to do that with us now. Lord, we ask for every situation, every trial, every struggle that our congregation is going through now together. First, we ask that we would go through it together, that we would lean on each other, we would share our concerns, and that we would pray for each other and support one another. And also that we would see your work in us and look to you as the sole provider for everything we need. Lord, I pray that as we come to understand how truly magnificent you are, how wonderful, how deserving of praise, that we would be vocal people, encouraging others in the gospel and sharing this same good news with those who have yet to know you. We ask that you would do this for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read this morning. We are in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 9, Genesis 29, 31, and we're going to read to 30, verse 24. These are Jacob's children. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah received and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him, her servant Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you're like me, and if you've read through Genesis in the past, maybe you decided one New Year's to read the Bible cover to cover, starting in Genesis. This was likely one of those passages that you finished with a a mental, hmm, interesting, and moved on. As we approach passages like this one, uh, such as genealogies or long historical lists, it is important to remind ourselves that these are the very words of God, by which he is revealing something vital to our understanding of him and of the human situation to those being led by the Spirit into deeper relationship with him. And so this is part of the reason why I have not Uh, pressed uh, yearly Bible reading plans because it is just going to take as long as it takes you. And as you read, you should uh, be trying to understand what is it really saying, not just making our eyes go across a page. Secondly, it is imperative that we are not distracted from the message of God's Word by injecting our own moralism into the text. These are kind of the easy ways to miss the message. And and if we don't get the message here, we'd be tempted to expound on the wickedness of polygamy or on the danger of favoritism in family relationships. We could assess the characters of the human actors and their behavior, like Abraham and Sarah before them, Rachel and Leah, are at work trying to achieve what they desire out of life. Should they have instead done nothing but wait? The author doesn't tell us. Jacob 
is here a, a, clearly a failure as a father by all modern cultural and even spiritual standards. Should we focus then on the vital role of husbands and fathers in a healthy family? The problem with merely using a passage like this as a springboard onto a topical application is that then we would miss the intended message of the human and divine authors. When we approach Scripture, we must resist reading our understanding onto it and prayerfully ask, what message is the author trying to get across? Our passage this morning has a context. And if you haven't been with us uh, through the previous weeks, we're looking at the life of Jacob. And this passage is, this morning we're looking at is designed to deepen our understanding of the main themes represented throughout Jacob's life. And I want to remind us of them before we go again through the text so we can recognize them as they are expressed. From the get-go, we see that there are some serious problems for this family. The narrative begins with barrenness. There are obvious physical barriers to living in the blessing and command of God to be fruitful and multiply, a promise which God's chosen people have had repeated to them seven times leading up to this story. Among physical barriers to being fruitful and multiplying, barrenness is probably atop of the list. It's an absolute hopeless situation without the power of God. Also, the promise of salvation for these Old Testament saints was tied to offspring. And so barrenness represents not only a barrier to having that family that they wanted, but represented a serious barrier to experiencing God's blessing. And while, as I said, there are numerous barriers to the fulfillment of God's blessing, the most serious threat is always the character of God's chosen people themselves. Here, we are confronted with the pervasive nature of sin, even among those whom God has chosen. And so here, it, between these two sisters and with Jacob, we see the sins of the fathers are passed on to the children. We see these, these people, Jacob and his wives, sinning in very familiar ways, following the pattern of the elder generation. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and, and Laban. Now this generation are sinning in the same ways in which they have been sinned against by their parents. Jacob's life also highlights God's divine discipline through reciprocity. That is, Jacob re reaps what he sows. So where Jacob... Uh, took advantage of the weakness and blindness of his brother and of his father. He is then in turn exploited by Laban in the last passage and now by his wives in this one. There's a, a theme of the, the downgrading or degrading of family members, among others, into objects to be used, treating them as merely a means to an end. But because of the human condition... This reciprocity cannot extend to the blessing. There is no reaping of God's favor here because of righteousness. God 
is merciful, keeping his covenant of love to this generation despite their abusive and grasping character. We see once again that it is by divine grace and mercy, not human merit, that God establishes his blessing. God incorporates here the the most fallible and fallen people into his gracious plans. And this is why there is hope for you and me. So true to his repeated promise, God formed the family of Jacob, founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, despite the rivalry, envy, and self-seeking that characterized his home. So this is the story, then, of how through the tension and the jealousy and even by the means of manipulation and trading of things that should have been held sacred, God was able to create for himself a people, the nation of Israel. Let's look, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah is hated, which some translations render as unloved, which is a helpful interpretation, I think, because hate today usually refers to a powerful negative emotion, a vitriol, a loathing. When we say we hate something, we mean that we have a disgust for it. We have a a feeling. It's interesting because strong negative emotion is sometimes quite far from the opposite of love. In fact, it can be quite near to it. At times, our, our strongest negative emotions are reserved for those we are closest to. Hell hath no fury in all of that. But biblically, hate is usually the opposite of love, or even to be loved categorically less. Thus, Jesus can call only those, Luke 14, 26, who hate their own family and even their own lives to be his disciples. So, Jesus isn't saying you have to have strong negative emotions towards everyone and yourself. He's saying that there must be a greater exclusive love for God. So, Jacob does not necessarily hate Leah's guts, as we would put it, but perhaps worse, he has no regard or desire for her at all. And so, sadly, this situation does not change for Leah despite all her efforts. This becomes something that is insurmountable. Jacob doesn't just have fiery, passionate feelings one way and then the other. He just doesn't like her. He has no feelings for her. But the merciful God extends grace to the unliked, the uncelebrated, the unloved. He chose Jacob over his elder brother Esau and now chooses Leah over the beautiful and beloved Rachel. And so she gives birth to the coveted firstborn child and a full half of Jacob's sons. With the later addition of a daughter, she has more children than the other three women combined and the, what was considered the perfect number of children, seven. So she has six sons and a daughter. Rachel, on the other hand, like the beloved wife of the previous two generations, is barren. This is a continued tension throughout the lineage of God's chosen people because of their need to see that one who belongs to God can only come from God. And so this is God's 
MO throughout his handling of these people is he always allows for or even causes, closes the womb, breaks off what they need so that they will come to him for it. And they don't just think of it as something that naturally will happen for them. This barrenness then becomes the premise for the entire situation to follow. This is what gives cause for the mean-spirited rivalry between the sisters and the motivation for them giving their maids as additional wives to their husband. And it is also the cause for all the proud proclamation of names for their sons given to celebrate and to gloat. Verse 32 And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now you're going to see some of these names have quite a lot of thought put into them. Reuben is literally sea and a son mashed together. See a son, that's his name. But it is also a clever acronym from the Lord has looked upon my affliction. And a, a second acronym, my husband will love me. So she says, she called him Reuben because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And both of these phrases create acronyms for Reuben's name. She gives her second son a name that in Hebrew sounds like herd. So as with Reuben's, Simeon's birth is linked to her unhappy marital situation, but also reflects what God has done mercifully for her. So these names are not focused on the unpleasant situation. She doesn't call them uh, hated or unloved. She calls them uh, according to God's purpose on how God overcame her situation with a blessing. And so their names mean God has seen and God has heard that she is unloved with the implication that God not only knows but takes action. He has shown his care and concern for the unfortunate and unloved. And so in this, Leah's response to the birth matches exactly with the narrator's interpretation of what was happening in verse 31. God saw that she was hated and opened her womb. And so she recognizes this. But these births did not cause a change in Jacob's feelings about Leah. Strangely, he takes no part in naming the children. Leah, unfortunately, is not the last woman to discover that her pregnancy is not a guarantee of the biological father's support and love. Verse 34. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This third and fourth son, uh, they're both of some importance. From Levi would come the Levitical priesthood along with the prophet Moses and Israel's first high priest, Aaron. And Israel's rightful monarchy would descend from Judah. And so it is amazing that three 
of, well, the three most important Old Testament institutions, priesthood and kingship, along with Israel's first judge and prophet, have their origin in an unwanted and unplanned marriage. Levi's name, which sounds like attached, uh, just about makes me want to cry for Leah. Perhaps now there will be some attachment from my husband. She has been sold by her unloving father as chattel to an unloving husband who will make use of her for the purpose of children, but will not even grow fond of her throughout their marriage and despite her efforts. Each time she conceived, she nurtured the same yearning, but always in vain. In spite of having the Lord's favor, blessing, his gifts, her hope for her husband is not realized. She would never have what she wanted from him, so she would have to learn to find fulfillment in God's grace alone. The name of her fourth son reflects this necessary attitude change. Judah, which means, I will praise the Lord. Leah would resolve to praise the Lord for his providence and goodness towards her, despite the painful situation of her loveless marriage. Later in Genesis 49, 8, Jacob prophesied that Judah would rise to prominence in Israel. And we we now know, looking back through the Bible, that Judah was the ancestor of both Israel's King David and his descendant, King Jesus, according to his human nature. It is through this child of praise that God would ultimately heal this family. And through him would come the source of blessing and reconciliation for people from every nation, tongue, and tribe to be included within Israel's tribes. It's also significant that Leah names three of her first four children with reference specifically to the Lord. Uh, If you have a capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's not just generic God, but she gives praise through three of these sons to Yahweh, which shows that her faith is in the one true God and not in the gods of Haran, her land, or of Laban's household. And it also validates the reasons why Rebekah and Isaac, Jacob's parents, sent him to Haran in the first place. They sent him there to find a wife of God's own choosing, And we're meant to see that he has found her in his first wife, Leah. After Judah, Leah stopped having children. Uh, Though she has not become barren like her sister, uh, the likelihood is that Jacob has stopped visiting her altogether, uh, perhaps because of the envy these children caused for the wife that he did love. uh, Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel envied her sister. 
Each woman wants what the other one has, and neither of them initially treasure what they have been given for its own value. Leah has children. Rachel has the love of her husband. Both want both. If fertility was considered a blessing for God, which it was, with barrenness came the stigma of one who was suffering God's curse. People would question, what what have they done to deserve such a thing? And so Rachel tries to cast the blame at Jacob, but he's having none of it. His answer is callous and defensive, but ultimately theologically correct. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? One of the main points of this entire passage is that both birth and barrenness and fertility and denial of fertility are in the hands of God. Jacob knows that he can impregnate. He's proved that multiple times. But he cannot play God. But neither does he pray to God on her behalf as his father before him did when Rebekah, his mother, was barren. And so although she is loved by her husband, Rachel does not consider life worth living without children. Ironically, she says she will die without children and then later will die giving birth to a second child. For now, Rachel will follow what is the common practice for those who can't have children themselves, which was used by Sarah to cause so much strife and trouble in Abraham's household. She gives her servant to her husband so that she will provide a child to their marriage as a sort of surrogate. Now again, we don't want to moralize here. The author has no rebuke for either sister in regard to this widely accepted practice in the ancient world. Certainly, we should understand that having multiple surrogate wives is a bad idea, but that is beside the point here. It's not the point the author is trying to get across. God used this custom to produce the tribes of his nation. Verse 6, then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's Servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So without a husband willing to intercede for her, Rachel prays for herself. She names the children born by surrogacy, for they are considered to be her adopted children according to the custom. Now Rachel does not appear as strong in faith as Leah is. And later in Genesis 31, when they leave the house of Laban, she will steal his household gods or idols and take them with her. And so the names given to the sons of Rachel through Bilhah did not reflect the same faith that Leah's namings did. They reflect the envy and rivalry that Rachel was having with her sister for vindication. And so, accordingly, she names her adopted son Dan, which sounds like vindication. And remember, she feels this need for vindication because her infertility would bring with it an assumption that she is suffering punishment for wrongdoing. And so, even though she actually is still barren and her servants bore a child, she's like, look, this, is, this son's my vindication. I'm not being punished. The second son born to her in this way is also triumphantly named Naphtali, which means or which sounds like wrestling. 
She is struggling for her place in the family and ultimately struggling for God's favor. Now she claims to have it. Bruce Waltke writes this. He says, In naming their children, the wives reveal their own spiritual state, reflecting their struggle and the recognition of God's assistance to them in their unloved or childless states. Out of pride and self-exaltation, they use the names to hurl malicious shafts at one another. And so while one is barren, childless, the other is making these triumphant pronouncements of names, and then when she ceases to bear, the other begins to throw back victory, vindication. And so the atmosphere in Jacob's household was full of tension and jealousy as the two sisters crowed triumphantly over each other as each successive son was born. Just as Laban treated these, his daughters, as livestock to be sold, pawns in an economic struggle, so now his daughters sin in the same way. They used their servants and even their children as pawns in their personal conflict. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Now, Leah already had four sons, but she too is caught up in the conflict with her sister and gives her young servant to Jacob to produce more children on her behalf. She fires back in response to Rachel's salvo, naming her sons good fortune and blessed luck. She further explains that her fortunate circumstance has earned her the praise of other women. But she still lacks what she desires, the love of her husband. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came, from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And so this family turns to two devices to overcome the disaster of barrenness. The first was the use of their servant girls as surrogate mothers, first by Rachel and then by Leah, and it works, except it only works as it did for Sarah and Abraham. There are children, but not the ones still awaited. It does not bring peace to the home, but brings rivalry and dissension. The second device they turn to is the use of mandrake, also referred to as love apples or love fruit. They were thought to have many medicinal qualities, including use as an aphrodisiac. Uh, it is a, a large 
Uh, it has large fleshy and forked roots that are thought to resemble the human torso. And, and so there was some real medicine in it and also a lot of superstition surrounding it. Uh, and so apparently Rachel thought that they could help her barrenness in some way as well. What we should see here, though, is both sisters reduce Jacob to something to be bartered. Just as Laban had reduced Jacob to a hireling, now he is hired by the woman who has already borne him four children. Just as Jacob's relationship with Laban is changed from flesh and blood at the beginning to wages, now his marriage to Leah is reduced to a transaction. This is actually the third time in the story of Jacob that family has been degraded into a commercial transaction. And we'll see the same thing happen to Joseph as he has sold by his brothers as a slave. And so you see this sin keep on being passed down the generations as they, they just think of this as the normal way to act. And it, it's not the, the message of the author, but we can take heed of this as parents and ask God to reveal to us ways in which we are expressing our lack of hope and trust in Jesus and passing that on to our children. That's not ultimately our hope, and that's, we will get to the hope in this passage shortly. But this is the third time that family has been degraded into a commercial transaction. Previously, there was the exchange of Esau's birthright for food, then the exchange of Jacob's labor for his wives, and now Jacob is reduced to a stud in exchanged in a transaction between his wives. And so in the first two, Jacob is a, a victimizer. Now he is the victim. And so he reaps what he has sown. And his wives follow the sinful pattern they themselves were treated with. A sin is insidious and extends its work. But God is also at work, and vastly more so. Though Rachel receives the mandrakes, it is Leah who has more children here, presumably because she now has access to her husband. And when Rachel does finally conceive, it will not be because of mandrakes, but because God remembers her. In their struggles, these sisters will scheme and use mandrakes and servant girls, and God will even use some of it for His purposes. But in the end, God will show Himself to be the only real cause of new life. Verse 18, Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Three points here. Issachar sounds like the Hebrew for both reward and hire. So his name represents a pun at Jacob's expense, as well as a celebration of God's grace. She hired her husband, but her reward is from God. And it's actually easy to miss how they have placed Jacob here. He is, um, the, the word used 
for the way they sleep together is not the normal word used for married couples, but is always for illicit sex outside of marriage. Um, the way that he is prostituted by one wife and hired by the other is the, the original audience would have seen this as just a, a terrible event. This is not what should happen in a family. And so, and then she names this son Issachar as this constant reminder of Jake, the time she had to hire Jacob to do what he should have done for her as her husband in the first place. And so God has given her her reward in yet another son. Zebulun sounds like both gift and honor. And so her explanation of the name Zebulun is filled with these like-sounding Z words. This is why it sounds funny in English. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me. Those are all the same word or sound like the same word. So God has Zebulon me with a good Zebulon. Now my husband will Zebulon me because I have born him six sons. Now that's not exactly how it is in Hebrew, but that, you get the point. She's making this wordplay on his name. God or Leah thought that God gave her Zebulon as a gift so that her husband would now finally honor her by acknowledging her finally, as his wife, uh, which unfortunately was a false hope yet again. And finally, she bears Dinah, who is the only named daughter of Jacob, and no basis for her name is given, but she is here because she will reappear in the horrific events of chapter 34. Now we come to the climax, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Rachel's pregnancy is not the result of her scheming, nor of Reuben's mandrakes. God remembered her. And with this statement, we know that despite her lack of faithful statements or behavior, Rachel, too, is chosen by God to receive his covenant love. Like I said, this is the climax. Um, and if you look back through the book of Genesis, you know why. J Joseph is that son who will save the whole family. In fact, most of the people in the known world will owe their lives to Joseph's work in Egypt. And the story kind of ends with this feeling like Joseph might be the most important son because he is favored by Jacob being the son of his only loved wife, the wife he loves. But now in this climax, finally, Rachel's shame of barrenness is taken from her. And, and she is actually vindicated at last. The, the Dan thing, that was kind of grasping at straws. To say I'm vindicated because another woman had a child... Maybe, maybe not. So she's now finally vindicated, not because she has been shown to be innocent of wrongdoing, but because God is merciful to remove her reproach. This entire narrative is about this movement from barrenness to birth. And yet the movement is accomplished without human action. It comes by the faithfulness of God, the remembering seeing and hearing of God. 
Walter Brueggemann writes, the two mothers of Israel, the loved and not loved, the beautiful and not beautiful, discover together that barrenness is not a problem for human solution. New life is God's gift. The seemingly incidental assertion of Leah in verse 32 is the claim of the entire narrative, God looks upon the affliction of His children. This is the gospel, the good news in Genesis. God chooses the lowly to care for, the unloved, the second-born, the barren ones. And it is only because God sees, hears, and remembers that there is a Joseph. And so, with this importance around Joseph, his birth signals the abrupt end of the birth narratives, even though there is another son to follow, a twelfth Benjamin. His name means, may he add, which also sounds like the Hebrew for take away, which are the two statements she makes at his birth. Her reproach is removed according to God's mercy, and she anticipates another son, even naming her son, give me another one, essentially. Because Jacob is the son who will rescue the entire family, and because of this, through God's faithfulness to Rachel and giving her a son, the story of this family has another chapter. There is a future for Jacob's family because God was faithful to Rachel. So after understanding this, let's, let's as brief as possible, look back through the main themes of this section. The first we saw is barrenness. The impossibility of what we want. That which gives great cause for anguish and shame and results in tension and rivalry throughout this narrative is transformed by the power of God into a condition pregnant with expectation. From the biblical perspective, barrenness need not be an occasion for turmoil or fear, but rather an opportunity for sovereign grace. What is your barrenness this morning? What is the situation that seems hopeless, for which there is nothing you could do to change? For the believer, this is not meant to lead to turmoil and fear, but trust in God who has allowed such a trial in our lives. The second theme we saw is reciprocity, reaping what you sow. Jacob's sin is returned to him in Laban and then through Laban's daughters. The sins of the fathers and mothers resurfaces in their children. Rachel and Leah selfishly struggle to gain their husband's affections and social status through childbearing. They abuse their servant girls. They abuse their husband. They abuse each other and ultimately their children. And it will not be without painful results. What they sow is reaped in their lives, in the lives of their children, reaped in the conflict they introduce to their home. And they sow the seed of the future destructive tribalism that will one day ruin the sons of Israel. Israel at one time will almost completely wipe out one tribe in battle. At the end of the life of Israel, it's split between Israel and Judah, and they are at each other's throats. 
And so we see that their actions have repercussions. There is reaping what they have sown. But sowing and reaping will not derail the plan of God. He remains faithful to his chosen ones despite what they sow here. Which brings us to our next theme, God's mercy and grace. God saves sinners. The sovereign God mercifully builds up Israel here by championing the unloved and the needy, the sinner. The blessing of God is expressed unreservedly and endlessly upon those who do not deserve it at all. And so Israel's history is that the 12 tribes of Israel begin in opposition, social pain, and rivalry. In spite of Jacob's prayerlessness and failure as a husband and father, despite Rachel and Leah's rivalry, which led to all sorts of abuses, God blesses the family with undeserved favor. Twelve sons to father twelve tribes into which are welcomed the entire people of God. His grace is greater than our sins, and His purposes will not be thwarted by them which is our great hope. Hope is another theme embedded in this agonizing story of people's emptiness and self-inflicted pain. God gives this gracious gift of hope. Leah has no children, or sorry, Leah has children, but no loving husband. Rachel has the affection of her husband, but no children. All believers will find themselves at some point living in a situation where it seems that we are blocked from experiencing the fullness of life. Every one of us will experience this. All of us will experience some sort of barrenness. Something that seems to effectively keep us from having what life should offer. To this, the Bible offers no trite platitudes, but the seeing, hearing, and remembrance of God. Jesus promised, John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Faith is bringing our fears and weaknesses to God. And believing that somehow God will transform our pain into a moment of grace. And such good news as this, this hope we have because of God's mercy and grace, utterly defeats covetousness, the envy Rachel and Leah experienced. Their envy-fueled strife caused such devastation in their family. It's no wonder that jealousy, envy, or covetousness is found in every New Testament sin list. You know, you've got the bad sins. We sometimes think of them. Always there present is covetousness, envy, or jealousy. And while this passage does not give us directions on how to not be envious... The passage here, as God's Spirit brings transformation to our hearts through it, will end envy in us 
when we realize that every blessing is dispensed to people according to the sovereign will of God. And that God's choice to bless is not made according to what we deserve, but according to His grace for those who need it most. The downcast, the afflicted, the troubled, the oppressed, and the rejected. And when we recognize ourselves as those in need of such grace, we can place our wholehearted trust in God and patiently await His blessing on us without covetousness. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful to you that you have provided us in your word not merely directions on how to do better, but revelation of your character which utterly defeats sin in us. Lord, I I can try not to want things others have. Imagine being a childless woman with a husband with two wives, and one has many wives, and one has no, or one one has many children, sorry, the other has no children. Uh, Imagine trying not to envy in this situation. Lord, some of us have less than others. Some of us have lives that seem less happy positions that we would like to have, situations that we'd like to have. And to hear that I should just stop envying is an impossibility. But God, in your mercy, you reveal to us who you are. And your spirit in us can end envy in us when we realize that blessing comes from you and you give it in just the right time to fulfill your purposes, to discipline us, and for our good. And so, Lord, every time we come to the place of struggling with strife and envy, I pray that you would bring to mind the story we've read this morning and that you would transform us by your Spirit into your likeness through the revelation of your character here, and that our hope would be in you alone. We ask this for the glory of Jesus as you are at work in your church. Amen.